0: What are your thoughts on bullying? I have a really odd thought process about it and a different approach. I'm kind of big on bully-proofing kids rather than focusing on the bully, Mm. but bully-proofing your child. I like Mm. that. Hey, I'm
1: Allison Hare, and welcome to Culture Changers, the podcast that interviews the bold leaders that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. Welcome to the new and improved podcast show called Culture Changers. I'll get into the name change and a super amazing giveaway in a moment, but this is episode number 47 with Amy Dean, the Behavior Queen. We are talking about bad behavior and kids. You know the kind, the ones that are super disruptive. Maybe they talk back, maybe they might be defiant or hurt other people or themselves. There's a whole myriad of ways that kids can act out. And with pressure mounting in the classrooms and at home, it's hard to maintain control and order and still act in everyone's best interest. Okay, so here's the deal. Think of all the people in your life that are teachers, principals, administrators, parents who struggle with challenging behavior in their kids, child therapists, or anyone who works with kids. I want you to think of at least three people and share this episode with them right now. It will change everything. Amy Dean is a nationally recognized behavior interventionist educational consultant and author of two children's books she helps teachers implement positive and practical strategies to save our most challenging students and save themselves and as a parent i learned so many techniques to help instill esteem and confidence in my children from this chat if you're a parent or work with kids you will hang on to every word she says i also have the transcripts available in the show notes It is that good. Okay, so let's talk for a minute about my sudden name change. Last weekend, I went to PodFest, the multimedia podcast conference in Orlando. And I just love podcast groups because they're all creators. Podcasters have really become the world's most effective messengers. So it just felt great to be there. These were my people, you know what I mean? But as I've been doing so much building of my website, I started to really lose the luster of the name Little Left of Center. It never really felt quite right, but I love the original intention, which were people who think differently. However, in this political climate, everyone assumes it's a political podcast, and I'm sure it turned people off before even listening to any episode. So if I'm going to draw listeners in, I need to have it fully on brand. So I changed it to what it really is and has always been culture changers. I also changed my web URL to my name, AllisonHair.com. Believe it or not, it was still available because I've been told by many that I, in fact, am the brand. The other cool thing is that when you have your own podcast, You can pivot and change when it makes sense. So that is what I'm doing. All right, so I teased this at the very beginning that I'm doing a giveaway. And this is the first and possibly only time I'm doing this, but I thought with the rebrand, I really wanted to get my listeners involved. So I'm doing a drawing for a free course of my six-week step-by-step podcast launch program Press Play Podcasts. It's a $407 value. And honestly, if you've been thinking about starting a podcast and really sharing a message that is important for you, this is going to be priceless for you. So here's what I need you to do. Number one, go to your listening app. Let's say it's Apple. Go to my show, Culture Changers. Scroll all the way down to the bottom. Give me a five star rating and write a review. Take a screenshot, post it on your socials, and tag me at at Allison underscore underscore Hair. Allison A double L I S O N Hair is spelled like the rabbit. You will be entered in the drawing, and I will pull a winner on the lucky day, St. Patrick's Day, March seventeenth. Okay, now let's get to my chat with Amy Dean. <laughs> We are here with Amy Dean, the behavior queen. And I cannot say that without <laughs> thinking Paula Dean, like Amy Dean, the behavior queen. <laughs> I know, it's so funny.
0: I get And I get introduced, people think it's so funny to introduce me when I'm walking onto a stage. Right. They say Amy Dean, the behavior queen, you know, always.
1: It's so smart too. But tell me more about your background. Tell me about what you do.
0: So at my background, I knew when I went to college that I... Wanted to do something to work with kids. And specifically, in fact, I said to the advisor that I met with, he said, what is it you want to do every day? And I said, you know, he kind of said, what is your dream? And I said, well, I wanted to be a stand-up comic. And we had this awkward silent stare for (laughs) a second. And he said, what is your plan B? And I said, I want to work with bad kids. And Why did you say bad kids? Because I was 17 and I had been a bad kid. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd always been in trouble my whole career. And I didn't know any better at that point because Mm -hmm. I think – You know, especially where I grew up, a small town in Mississippi, um, where obedience is revered. And that's how we see good kids. Kids that are obedient are good kids, and Mm. kids who are not obedient are bad kids. So I had kind of felt my, I knew that I was a bad kid in a lot of people's um, opinion and i wanted to be the adult that treated them differently and saw them differently and was like their cheerleader so i said bad kids and he corrected me and he said let's not call them bad let's call them challenging and i remember thinking to myself why they're not here why does it, you know why does it matter mm-hmm. but it was the kind of the very first um, really good advice that i got that helped me start to change my mindset which is what i'm trying to do when i go out and work with teachers now is we've been trained by the language we hear from adults our entire childhood you know, that you can't date that boy because he's bad. You can't hang out with that crew in the neighborhood because they're bad. We, that's what grandparents and parents say to us. So then we're trained to see someone who doesn't follow rules or that's disrespectful as bad. And I want us to change our mind about kids and say they're challenging, they're facing something, there's a barrier. It's keeping them from being successful.
1: So what happens now? So you're an author of the book called Your Happy Heart, a kid's book. You had talked about being a bad kid. So what kind of kid were you in high school? What did that look like?
0: Oh, in high school. So um, I like to say bad started right around 12. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents got divorced when I was six, and I was living with my sister um, and my father. And my mom wasn't really a part of my life at that time uh, very much. And we just went through some some real hard, kind of sad times over mm-hmm. the next few years as he tried to figure out his life and um, had a, a difficult marriage and, and divorce and marriage again. So we went through several different home situations. And so there was a lot of sad years there. And I think at 12 or 13, um, I decided this isn't going to get better. Um, I have no control over this situation. And so I started to sort of take it into my own hands and started to make some you know negative choices, self-medicate. That kind of thing. And um, you know, that's not what other parents want their kids hanging around with. The kid that's drinking or being expelled from school or in trouble at school all the time. My grades really took a huge dive. I was a straight A student until seventh grade. And then, you know, I found a report card for my eleventh grade year when I was we were redoing our basement and I was cleaning out and I found my senior year memory book and i had stuffed a bunch of stuff in it and two things in the same pocket which sort of explain high school right here for you (laughs) one was an envelope one of the parties i had where i had kegs and a dj and i am very organized i've always been a great party planner but in (laughs) ninth grade i was collecting money for this keg party that i was having and i had written every single kid's name and how much they paid i can remember it was i laughed so hard i texted my friends and i said steve d paid a dollar 40 what did he think he was going to drink <laughs> for a dollar 40 you get right. one sip buddy everybody like else been a five solo bucks. cup right exactly and so i had the list of who paid from this party in ninth grade on an envelope and my report card that had 11 comments 10 of them negative one of them positive i had a 55 in one of my math classes and I had missed 19 days of school that year. Wow. That was my junior year. What was the positive comment? It was from my language arts class and said I was an excellent contributor. Wow. Because I've always loved to write and I love to read. That's that's my strength. That's That's what I love to teach as well. And the others said not living up to potential need parent, um, you know, meeting. It was all these negative Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was my junior year of high school. Like you kind of are getting it together at that point, but I wasn't. And, um, you know, I almost, I feel like sometimes I enjoyed having that reputation a little bit because it was kind of like a party girl reputation. It was fun, yeah. you know, and people like to be around fun people. So I need to I be more fun. I that
1: is probably more common, like yeah. to kind of get in that, uh, I don't know. I think that in a lot of high school Experiences people have a slow burn of sadness or isolation, and kind of the exploration of alcohol and partying and all of that. Right.
0: I can understand that. So, I had a couple of epiphanies, I would say, and through the beginning of college. And I had a, a, a bad experience in New Orleans and <laughs> on Barbe Street and decided that I wasn't going to drink anymore. I just said cold turkey that I was going to stop drinking. Wow. And I was not 21 yet. I was 20. And it was a hard it was really it wasn't hard for me. Everybody started treating me differently. My friends were not happy about it. They didn't want me to. That's not who I was. I had been fun, Amy, party girl, ready to go anytime, all the time. And it was weird. It was like people thought that I wanted them to quit or I was judging them mm-hmm. for doing it.
1: It's like a mirror too it that I'm
0: definitely was. Yeah. And and I was like, I don't care what you think. This, I have to do this for me. I ha- I feel what like-
1: What made you get that strength or that courage to do that? Because that, that sounds crazy to be able to make that commitment that young in the age of, of social right. whatever. How? I
0: remember very specifically getting into a, a horrible fight with my stepmother. Probably the worst argument fight that I've ever had with any other human ever. It was years in the making- And she was pregnant with my little sisters who just turned 30, twins. And we were screaming at each other and saying the most hateful things. And I said some really terrible things to her. And I left. This was on like Thanksgiving Day. And I left the house and I cried for several hours. And I thought, this is not who I was meant to be. I am not this person. I am a happy person. I want to make people feel good. I'm a helper. You know, that's kind of my personality. And I am, I hate people right now. I'm angry and I'm sad. And I think alcohol was making that worse. You know, I was in that, that cycle of, well, let me drink to not have to worry about it. And then, you know, you wake up and you feel worse. And so you just kind of keep going with it. And I said, I am, I am made for better things and I have to fix it myself. I can't be mad at my mom anymore. I can't be mad at my dad. I can't be mad at my stepmom. I can't hate everybody for what I see as their mistakes, I have to take it on and fix it myself. And so I, I feel like that was, um, a divine intervention. I don't think I did it on my own. I was wondering
1: if you felt like,
0: I felt like that was God's mm, hand on me. I do. Yeah. It's hard
1: for people to know that they are greater, you know, from a self-esteem perspective or that they have more purpose than what they've been living thus far, you know?
0: And I feel like my dad has always been an amazing role model for me and he he really instilled independence in my sister and I which I I think for a long time um we saw that as maybe a little too much free range you Mm -hmm. know parenting but I see he is a big believer in going out and doing for yourself and not being dependent on others and making and figuring out your own way and so I did have a lot of confidence in myself from an early age and part of that too is just being um my older sis, my, the big sister to my little sister, Laura, who we were the two, you know, that are when our parents divorced, I sort of took on the leadership role with her. So that gave me a lot of confidence too, that I could handle a lot of things because Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, well, I'm going to be, you know, the mom in this situation now. And that was, and I was only six or seven, you know, at the time. So there was a lot of confidence down in there. Uh, and I used that and I used sort of that, that moment. And, um, my twenty first birthday is the last time I ever drank. I got really shit faced on my twenty first birthday <laughs> because that would be ridiculous to have drank all the yeah. way to that point, not do it, mm-hmm. and then that was it. That's the last time that, that I was your last hurrah. That was my
1: last time. Are you sober? A hundred percent. Wow, that's since, amazing. Twenty one. Um, and I'm so okay. So let's go back for a second about the bad kids, about you helping bad kids. What prompted you to want to reach out and make a difference for kids that may? you know, have had similar backgrounds as you did or may have been cast aside or, um, you know, or or um, thrown away, discarded Absolutely. as a bad kid?
0: You know, I felt like where I grew up, um, like I said, obedience was very valued. And I was never that kid. I was always a questioner. I always had a mouth on me. I always had something to say. I was an arguer and, and people didn't like it and adults didn't like it. And I thought, As an adult, I see where those gifts can turn into real, it's a real skill set to have Mm -hmm. that and very, you know, starting your own business and various things, you got to have some of those things. And I thought early on, even when I was a teenager, I want to be an advocate for kids that are on the fringe. You know, I I want people, I want them to know that I see amazing gifts in them, no matter what they're putting out in the world. And I knew that. So I I didn't know what capacity that was going to be. I thought I wanted to be a school counselor, a therapist And I had a couple good therapists along the way. My dad did, you know, provide that in in my life. And that gentleman that I told you about my freshman year suggested that I be a special ed teacher when I said I wanted to work with bad kids. And he said, well, you know, what is that? What do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I want to really help kids who struggle with behavior and, and depression and sadness. And he said, why don't you consider special ed? He said, because you'll always be able to find a job, which is true. And you'll get to work with challenging kids every day. I promise. And so I did that because he's and my sister Jenny, my stepsister, is um has had a lifelong handicap from a traumatic brain injury. So I've always been around, which she would be more considered moderate to severe. So I've always been around kids with special needs. I, I was a special needs camp counselor, so that was just an easy oh yeah, mm-hmm. special head that'd be great. Uh, then I specialized in emotional behavior disorders, and so I took a couple extra courses in behavior science which really have prepared me for my entire classroom career to help kids change their behavior, not tell them what's wrong with them, not try to punish it out of them to literally help them learn. I can control my behavior because I've been there. I changed who I was literally on my own. I decided I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to use my gifts in a different way. And so I did that and I, and I know that kids can do it.
1: How much is the responsibility of the teacher versus the parent? Where do you come in with a magic wand? What do you know that other people, you wish other people would know?
0: Well, that all behavior is an attempt to communicate a need. And we haven't been taught to look at behavior in that way. We've been taught as teachers to react to behavior. Have your five rules on the wall. Have your five consequences. When a student breaks a rule, employ a consequence. And depend on the consequence to change the behavior. And that's what a lot of parents and teachers really don't know that don't haven't had behavior analysis or behavior modification, you know, training is that there, it is an attempt to communicate a need. We must focus on what need is not being met and how can I either meet that need, teach the student to meet their own need or change the desire to have that need met because maybe it's not a healthy need that they have. You know, when children have a neurological disorder, kind of when we were talking about ADHD they're on the spectrum, you know, autism spectrum, Tourette's all different things that are neurological. That's a little bit different because those needs are brain based. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not as easy to change that with some behaviorist strategies. But a lot of the needs are environmental. And so we have a lot more opportunity to help kids get some control and some self regulation. So, you know, that's kind of the the thing that I think I do differently when I come in and work with teachers, and I work with thousands of teachers across, you know, the United States is to first, I need to change your mind about behavior, that this is not a bad kid. This is this, because we give up on kids. We give up on kids because we, oh, I've tried everything, which I say, okay, please never say those words to me. I want you to say, I've tried everything I know. Just add those two words to the end of that statement. You no one's tried everything. And so I think if we can change our mind about behavior and look at what is the need the child's trying to communicate and let's teach them how to communicate the need differently or get the need met in a positive way.
1: How do you figure out what those needs are? Because there are a lot of external factors that may not be so obvious on the outside. Maybe they're experiencing abuse at home or hunger or a lack of attention or they just come from a different place. How are you able to determine where those needs are?
0: Well, you know, the... the technical uh, response to that as a teacher's functional behavior assessment and a behavior intervention plan there's you know some real technical things that you are taught to do as especially as a special ed teacher well i work with uh, probably 90 percent of the teachers i work with are general ed teachers they are do not have a special ed background And that's exactly what they're lacking is how to figure out the function of a behavior. I made something up that I call the five minute FBA, which all special ed teachers laugh about because it's not a thing. An FBA, a functional behavior assessment is taken 10 days at least. You're, you're, you're observing, you're collecting data, you're plotting. It's all, you know, this kind of technical thing. And I say to teachers, no, I want you to write down up to three behaviors that you want the child to change you want to help them change in very specific measurable terms don't write he's aggressive right puts hands on others with intent to harm when angry right argues with an adult when corrected instead of disrespectful i don't you know mm-hmm, those mm-hmm. those big nebulous words uh and then i want you to take a post-it note and i want you to tear every time you see the student do it so they don't know what you're doing you don't have to paper and pencil And you just tear every time that student blurts, every time that student puts her hand on someone, every time that student argues, and it gives you a baseline of how often it's happening. And now I can say to the child, okay, this is something that you're doing 10 or 15 times in an hour. Let's set a goal for it to be no more than five times in an hour. Let's see if we can meet that goal. So when I do that with a child and we set a goal and they attain it, now we have this amazing thing to celebrate even though they were still doing negative behaviors. Oh my gosh, you went from doing that 15 times to five times. I am so amazed by you. And they need someone. My EBD kids need someone to say, you're amazing and you can do great things. Define EBD. Emotional behavior disorder. Yeah. So it's a, it's a term that is used. um, There's 13 different areas that you can be qualified for special ed in the United States and emotional behavior disorders is one of them. Mm. So I'm, I'm Curious again,
1: I think I, I unfortunately asked some compound questions sometimes, but you know, I, I talked about the responsibility of the teacher. How do the parents come into this? What do you wish parents could know? Cause I'm a parent of two and
0: there's sometimes when I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what else to do. You know, for parents and I do, um, I'm a big believer in parenting with love and logic and teaching with love and logic. And that's Dr. Jim Fay. It's his approach to teaching and parenting. And he's so good about teaching kids personal responsibility and growing them. You know, one of my favorite kind of quotes is, I don't want to raise my child to do what he's told. I want to raise my child to make good choices. So you give tons and tons Mm. of choices from the beginning. It's one of the things that when I do try to coach parents that will come to me or I do a parenting seminar for a school district is, number one, you should also be analyzing what is the need my child is trying to communicate to me right now? What, why are they throwing themselves on the ground? What is it? Frustration? Is it sadness? So we should be asking them good questions instead of being so focused on stopping it. We should be asking the right questions. What do you need? How can I help you? Um, what would make you feel happy right now? What would, what would make you feel calm? What do we do to calm ourselves? You know, like with my nine-year-old, I say to him, he can be very defiant and he will tell me no when I tell him to do things. And we've done lots of training on that in my house I don't I don't like that I don't think he should tell an adult no but he does have the right to voice his opinion mm-hmm. so he has to use something I call the four-word strategy yes ma'am may I and now lots of people wouldn't say ma'am where I ra- I was raised you know ma'am it's a big thing <laughs> so I say well, okay we'll teach your child yes may I or okay may I "Oh, so tell me no you're not going to put that down say yes may I have three more minutes to use it So if you can speak to, if you can pose questions to me as a child that allow me to say, yes, you're going to get your way more often. So I feel like as parents, that's a cool tactic. Yes, it really, and it really helps. I think if you have, um, I want us to think of raising kids and discipline as more of coaching instead of catching. You know, I want us to coach kids on what to say instead of what not to say. Mm. And when you and I were raised and a lot of the teachers that are my age, you know, were raised, you do what you're told because I told you so, because Mm. I'm an adult. That's not, that's not really happening in 2020. Kids are, they have a voice, you know, they see all these things on YouTube or kids are having their own businesses. They see themselves differently, you know, almost as an equal sometimes, which a lot of teachers don't like, but I feel like, okay, Mm. I want you to have a voice in our house. But how you use that voice with a person of authority is critical. So I've always taught my students the language of disagreement, how to disagree with an adult. And I feel like that's one of the big mistakes that teachers and parents both make. We tell kids all the things not to say and not to do, but we never tell them what to say and how to do it.
1: This is profound. Do you have like a tip sheet? <laughs> <laughs> there are really some tips good. in the
0: back of that but the yes. Your Happy Heart book. But Oh my goodness. You know, I I know that I have a book in me mm-hmm. and it's just with three kids and running this business and traveling. I'm like, I, I, because I want to do this. I want to share the basics that I have figured out that have helped me be really good with kids and really good with kids with behavior issues. Because I've always been good at it from day one, student teaching. I, I bonded with kids, built relationships very quickly, connected with them. And I got a lot of kids to change behavior that nobody else on, you know, on the team or staff what is could secret? do. the secret. Why you? Why you? I feel like my history um, built me for this. I feel like the pain and the challenges that I went through as a child got me ready for it. Mm. And so I feel like there is an empathy and for them and they sense it. I'm telling you, kids with behavior issues, they smell fear, they smell confidence. They, they're they so good at, and I know I'm making a generalization, but they're so good at reading people. You know, it's kind of one of the things when you think about kids who lie and who steal and who have committed criminal acts, and who are violent, they have to be able to read people and figure out situations, you know, and that's one of their skill sets. And I remember working with an alternative school, and being in a meeting, and we were talking about a student who was a drug dealer, a known drug dealer. And that's one of the reasons he ended up in alternative school. And I said, you know, guys, I'd like to just focus for a minute on his entrepreneurial spirit. And all the teachers like looked at me like, that's a ridiculous thing to say. And I said, but If you, if, if he was selling anything else, if he was selling something we considered positive or even, you know, legal, we would be talking about his hustle, about, you know, his Mm -hmm. willingness to go out there Mm -hmm. and work and make money. I said, what about his ability to attract and keep customers? He's running financials. So he's selling something that we all see as a negative, but he has a business. And so we need to be focusing on that part of him. And so kids have always sensed that about me, that I will find what's right with you instead of what's wrong with you. What a
1: powerful reframe too. That's an interesting perspective. And I'm curious about, you know, as you primarily work with teachers, right? And in schools- Teachers,
0: administrators, school counselors. So those are kind of my audiences.
1: Yeah, so obviously we know in America, teachers are grossly underpaid, undervalued. And a lot of the challenges that they have, especially if they have kids that are- not only challenge behaviorally, but are challenged. You know, maybe there are areas of poverty, that kind of thing. Some of those challenges or mountains to overcome really seem insurmountable. So, how do you equip teachers with the ability to focus not only on one student when they might have a class of thirty students sure. and twenty of them are freaking out at any given time?
0: So how do, how do you move the needle? So, you know, in, in my full day seminar, behavior interventions at work, I've done it in, I think, 32 states. I've traveled all over and and worked in schools in different states. And, you know, one of the first messages I say, one of the very first things I say in the first 10 minutes of my, uh, of my training to, if I'm talking to five teachers or if I'm talking to a thousand, is I say, I want you to listen to me. Your students' behavior is not your fault. And then I just let that sit for a minute. And it's almost like you can Do hear people this. immediately cry, <laughs> you know, I right. would I would well up with tears. I, I, I feel like there is various emotional responses yeah. to it. And I say your students behavior is not your fault. Your res- your response to it is your responsibility. That's all you can control. So stop letting outside sources, society, parents, administration make you feel like you caused the behavior because that's very rare. I have observed kids in schools all over the country and first graders act the same everywhere I go eighth graders act the same everywhere I go. So it can't be you. If I'm seeing the exact same behaviors everywhere I go, it cannot be you. So first of all, take that off of your shoulders and stop feeling like it's you. It's not. Second, all behavior is an attempt to communicate a need. So I'm going to teach you how to figure out the need and you're going to be able to solve some behavior problems. And when they start to feel more confident, kids sense it. When they start to feel more control in their classroom, kids sense it kids want that kids want a confident person who can manage a a situation because it makes them feel calm and safe and so then they're more likely to take risks educational academic risks whatever you want to call it in that environment so when a teacher's timid and when a teacher feels like oh gosh i can't handle this or i just wish this student wouldn't be in my class anymore everybody all the kids in the room sort of sense that and unfortunately they also pounce on it you know so I always am trying to send the message to teachers that well, let's get control. Let's figure out who your top one or two kids are. Let's get a handle on the behaviors that are really disruptive to your environment. Let's start to see some positive change and other things will get better. I know it for a fact. I've done it. I've done it in the classroom myself. So that I think they trust me in the fact that I have, you know, I've been a teacher for 26 years and I've been in that just thousands of classrooms as well. Um, maybe not thousands of classrooms, but I work with thousands of teachers. And so I've seen everything, everything that you're dealing with. I've seen it and I know that it can get better. And I think they're so happy to hear that message.
1: What are some misconceptions that you feel like is your platform to change?
0: So misconceptions I am trying to change. For, well, yeah, that that kids can improve, that kids that are bad will be bad. And that that can't change. I know that from personal experience as well, that I was a certain way at 12, 13, 14, 15. And I'm a totally different person now. And, you know, that I've really been into the last few years studying trauma and the impact of trauma on children's brains and bodies. When you say trauma, what does trauma look like in that sense? So I specifically have been studying ACEs, uh, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, and that was a study done in the mid-90s by Kaiser Permanente Insurance and the CDC here in Atlanta. They looked at about 18,000 adult patients, and they asked. They gave them a questionnaire that asked about 10 different types of childhood trauma. Although there's probably 60, 65 types of identified childhood trauma this particular study only looked at 10 physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, emotional abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, incarceration of a parent. So it's very specific, this list of 10. And then they correlated that to the long term health outcomes of these adult patients. And what they found was so staggering the certain diseases that were prevalent, if your score was a four or higher. So for every one of those things that have, you, you know, you answered yes to. So yes, my parents got divorced and I had a parent incarcerated. If those were the two out of 10, your A score is a two. Or if zero happened to you, your A score is a zero. So every single human has an A score. So you look at those 10 types of trauma. So I started studying that probably about six years ago by accident and have kind of become obsessed with it and that has been something I'm now doing some trainings just on that like
1: I was about to say that sounds like a signal of you to veer your path so there. when I do
0: I speak at a lot of school counseling conferences there, there's state conferences around the US and one of my breakout sessions is trauma sensitive classrooms you know and I love to go work with counselors it's kind of what I wanted to be you know as a school ca- I want to be a therapist and I've I ended up getting to do that as a special ed teacher mm-hmm. and, and hopefully will in chapter three when my kids are grown I will go back and, you know, become an LPC. I really want to do therapy. Um, but what's so fun for me is I get to bring it from a teacher's perspective instead of a behavior specialist or a counselor, someone who may not have been the classroom teacher for years. How do you create a trauma sensitive classroom? Teachers have never heard of it. When I go into seminars, if there's a hundred people in the room, five people raise their hand. When I say, do you know what ACEs are? Do you know what the adverse childhood experience study is? So I'm, I feel like I'm on the, beginning of probably a five-year push because this is out there there are some districts that have completely they've trained their entire district on trauma sensitive practices and it's such a game changer to me because it explains why you're seeing some of the behaviors you're seeing which to me helps teachers have empathy instead of anger so
1: this keeps coming back to me I keep thinking about poverty because I live in this neighborhood that's very mixed as we talked about before the mics were turned on and You know, in a lot of cases, the starting line's not the same, right? right? And so some people really struggle with hunger and struggle with safety and food, or even just like having a roof over their head or knowing where they are. And these problems are so unbelievably large. And it's a lot to put on a teacher to be able to do that. But I'm curious of, of how how do we solve for that issue? Like, it's something that I feel really passionate about because I've, like I said, I used to be an academic mentor and sit across from people who really were struggling with those things. And I just wanted to love on them. I right. just wanted to just be there and show up for them. Even though it was hard, even though they may not have done what I, we were supposed to do, I knew that me being there would make a difference for them. Absolutely. But, that's showing up. Yeah. But when you have a group of people that are that way, how how do you turn a ship around that's so big? I mean, that's like systemic issues well, that, that are just far beyond the
0: I have a big classroom. kind of big systemic answer. And yes. this is what some d- districts are doing is they're starting to address the trauma with what you call wraparound services yes so it's not as a school we're not just taking care of the education we're taking care of exactly those needs so you're partnering with the community food bank that keeps you know at my son's middle school they have a closet with backpacks with food and so there are kids who come on friday and take a backpack so it's not here here's a bag of food for you to carry out Mm -hmm. they take a backpack and they're walking out with with food for the weekend and and that is stocked full by one of our community partners And then, you know, we have um, Summit Counseling that also comes to the middle school and is there two or three days a week. It's a community service and they're providing counseling all day long. Like if a child was to go to their office and have a real, you know, therapy session, they're doing it on campus. So that's what schools, some schools are starting to do. And they're addressing all of those underlying issues. But lots of schools aren't there yet. Funding is not, you know what I mean? That is a systemic Mm -hmm. approach. But I feel like we're we're on the cusp of this movement where that's where we're going in the next five years. Teachers will be trained on trauma sensitive. They will understand. Like I do some training, you know, some specific activities in my training about body position, about demanding children look at you in the eye when you're angry. Mm. It's an unreasonable request. Why do we say look at me when I'm talking to you? It's actually very, very hard to do. So knowing that a child has had some history of abuse, been exposed to domestic violence, not making those kind of demands you would make on your own child who doesn't have that same history. So we've got to try to help teachers stay out of the parent voice in times of crisis and be more of in their adult voice. How would you speak to your colleague in Mm -hmm. crisis? That's how I want you to speak to this seven year old. And now I'm
1: I'm thinking about the school shootings, which have become more and more prevalent. And part of the reason why you wrote this book is is because
0: of Parkland, right? It was it was a catalyst for the story. The story was there. You know, it's about some of my former students, but watching that and watching so many over my career, and and having students in my classroom that I felt like could have brought a gun to school and you know shot people. I thought to myself, my response watching the news, the news coverage on it was who is helping these boys because it's, it's almost all teenage boys that are doing this. There's not been a girl who has done it. It's mostly boy, you know, white males as well. And I feel like we're not addressing what's happening with them because they are going through trauma. If you look at almost every one of these stories about the shooters, they're going through trauma And our society is saying, don't cry, man up, all of those messages that I think are the wrong messages to send to boys. Rather than teaching boys, we cry when we're hurt and sad. We seek help when we're down about something because all of those feelings will come out. It will be aggression or depression, especially for males. And so we're not really serving them as teachers. I got the boys in my trailer when I was teaching Louisiana, all the bad kids, and I'm using language my principal there used, Um, were in trailers on the back of the campus. They weren't even in the main building. They were throwaway kids to everybody else. They were like, put them somewhere that we can't see them. Hopefully you get somebody in there that can manage them and let's just keep it out of sight, out of mind. Okay, so who's out there in the trailer coaching these kids, providing therapy, you know, that kind of thing. I always did my own little, I love something called the morning meeting as a classroom teacher. And again, you know, my background, I've always been very in thralled by human behavior. I'm very observant of human behavior. And this training that I went through taught me to have a morning meeting every day. This is a social emotional literacy approach to starting the day out as a positive. So you think about those children at the elementary school where you were serving as a mentor and advocate the stress that they live in is so high Mm. and they really lack coping skills. If I bring them into my classroom each day and start out with 15 minutes in the morning where we greet each other in a polite and, and kind way, and then we share our feelings for the day. Every child says today I feel blank because blank. And then we do a group activity where every child feels like I can do this and this is fun. And that's the start of their day, five days a week. I can start to change their mind about school. I can start to change their mind about relationships I can help them start to bond and connect with each other instead of side-eyeing everybody. What are you trying to get from me? You know, because they're Mm -hmm. always sort of in that hyper-threat mode. I've got to protect myself. Not in here you don't, because you're going to come in every day to sort of this group hug, and you're going to start your day out feeling good and positive. And when I can change that mindset... We're on our way to changing behavior and and self belief. You have the ability to
1: impact so many kids through your work, through the teachers, and even the teacher experience. I'm curious to see some of the stories that have come out of of these
0: behavior tactics. Oh my gosh, that's been so fun for me. Yeah. You know, I have this weird kind of mom guilt, but as the teacher guilt who left my kids. You know, this was never a plan for me. I was always going to be a teacher. I didn't even aspire to go do something else. But when Fulton County had um, when the crisis, you know, kind of the recession hit, um, Fulton County had a huge reduction in force and I had gone part time to stay. I was job sharing with a friend because I just had my second son and that and I gave up my contract to do that. Not having the force, you know, thinking I could lose my job. Wasn't even mm-hmm. I was a special ed certified teacher. You, you always somebody's always looking for you. And um, they, the superintendent we had for one year in Fulton County schools, her first cut was all part-time people. And so my principal told me in January, you won't, I can't have you back next year. And I was so devastated and didn't have a plan B. I'm a teacher and I really don't know what else I would do. And this, um, I had been teaching some night classes and doing a little help in schools around my school. And so the idea was like, well, maybe I could start this, you know, maybe I can do this. And a couple of really great things happened for me. And I started doing consulting, you know, on my own the next year. And then I got picked up by a seminar company who sent me out to do things. And I started to realize exactly what you just said. I was helping 10 kids or 20 kids or some years, you know, a hundred kids because I would be on a team with special ed and regular kids. And now in a room, I've got 200 teachers Or sometimes I've had 800 teachers or 1,000 teachers. And now I'm thinking of the numbers of kids that they see. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I just changed your mind about something. You know, now you're going to go back tomorrow and tell a kid what's right with him instead of what's wrong with him. And you're going to start changing his life at that point. And so the emails that I get, the letters that people write me, um, people tweet me and say, hey, I tried this today, Amy. And I'm so fulfilled by it. I got a really long email yesterday from... A lady who said I'm only a para and I text which is a uh, an assistant. Yeah, a para pro. And I emailed her yeah. back and I said, Don't ever say I'm only a para. I said, yeah. You have the love and light that these kids need. Do not dim your light because you're a major force in that classroom every day. You know, for those kids. But she said, You helped me understand what I've been wondering for years. I've been wondering what's changed for kids. You know, and I have this quote that I share with them that children haven't changed, childhood has. And that is what we're facing is what they're exposed to and the stress that they they feel and the things that they know at six, seven, eight, 10, mm-hmm. 12 years old, they don't have the scoping, the coping skills to deal with it. And so we're seeing lots of emotional behavior because of that.
1: I feel really passionate especially about the coping skills. And I went to a seminar, on parenting and it was through, I think it was child psychologists and they were saying that when we were kids, if you were upset with your parents, you would say, well, I'm going to run away from home. And now those words are never uttered. If somebody is upset with their parents, it's, I'm going to kill
0: myself. Right. So how did we get from one place to another? You know, that's interesting question. I I haven't ever really thought about it, but I do feel like there's big swing in parenting went from, I want to raise you to be independent and do you know great things in the world. When we were growing up, is now I want to raise you to be happy at all costs. So there, it's become this very self-centered, you know, wow, approach. That's really,
1: let me let that sit in for a second. Happy at all costs. We
0: we and happiness parents, is such a fleeting state. It's not. It's not happiness. It's is not, not reality. What you want. Well, it's not right. reality. You won't always be happy. So what has yes. happened is yes. now, if I'm not happy, something is wrong with me. I'm going to end it, of course, is the very most extreme thoughts. But my child has his teacher, oh, you don't like her? We're going to change that class. Oh, you weren't playing on basketball? I'm going to go talk to your coach. My father would have never changed my class or gone to talk to my coach about not, I played softball my whole life, not being on the, on the field to start. Suck it up. You weren't good enough. Practice harder. That was sort of, I think, the mentality of parenting in the 70s and the 80s. Wow. Some big shift happened where, You should be happy no matter what. And it has created this lack of resilience that a lot of kids have. If I'm not happy, then something's wrong. No, if you're not happy, figure out how to be happy or how did you get yourself here? We're not teaching kids or coaching them how to work through those sad feelings. Parents are just taking away the sad let me remove that sad or hard, that's difficult. That's like the lawnmower thing from you. parenting. It, and then when they get out into the real world, they have no idea how to handle or cope with any issues. That's why you see the levels with the twenty year olds. You know that whole age group with the, the high anxiety and oh. and all of that because we haven't let them suffer and face hard things as a child. That's what the love and logic is, approaches, is. Doctor Fay, that I was talking about, is that you have to start letting them make the hard choices, mm-hmm. have the failures, coach them through the failures. You give them their problem back and say, how are you going to solve that instead of solving it for them? That helicopter parenting, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that um, he he identifies different styles of parenting. And I have a little mix of my dad was very do-it-yourself, figure-it-out-yourself. I got a little, I, I give a little more, you know, than he did. But I think that's the difference between mother and father, mm. you know, as well. as The mom is a little more nurturing typically. And let me help you a little, but like my 15-year-old this summer, was going to get his permit and he needed to call the high school, which he had not attended yet. So he was nervous. He needed to call the high school to get a form filled out. And he said, I'm not calling you. And I said, honey, I'm not going to call. So you're not going to get the permit or the driver's license until you make the call and you get the form and you figure it out yourself. Why don't, I, and he was kind of stressed about it. And I said, I've seen you find things on the internet before. I know you're going to figure this out. And I didn't say another word about it. And he did it. And he was so angry about it. He was so angry that he had to call the school and do yeah. it. And I was, and when he did it, I was like, great, you got it done. So I'm processing what you're
1: saying. You have, you have given me a huge light bulb that's come off because it seems like the perfectionism, and I don't know if it is directly correlated to the Instagram, to the perfect models mm-hmm. into the social media accounts where everyone looks happier than you. Right. Everyone looks like they've got their shit together more than you. Lies. 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 Absolutely <laughs> lies, but your frontal core, you know, like lobe is yeah. not is not fully formed as you're 15. And so very often I hear of teenagers on Adderall and on other things just to help them kind of cope and be right. better and optimize whatever their their minds are going through so that level of perfectionism i i don't know how to combat that it seems so out of control
0: you know i i i'm From a big coping perspective well and i'm a big believer in limiting that especially for middle school kids and i talk about so- social media okay because i don't think they can handle a lot of that um i feel like it should be introduced in high school and then they need a lot of coaching you know on how to manage it and what's real and you know um to, th- there's got to be a lot of coaching. So Tell me things, what coaching looks like. You so, have three boys and they're all in their teenage years. It's Well, it's role playing. There's a lot of role playing. And I've always done that. And I've done that with my students. And I used to do small groups with kids with social skills um, practice. And I used this old school system called skill streaming that came in a box with 50, you know, social skills. And we would sit in a group and we would practice scenarios because, you know, what I've always been, what I've read been told is that it takes 21 to 28 times of doing a new behavior before it becomes your behavior. And so kids need a ton of practice on how to face something hard, what to say when you're really mad, but you need to tell somebody something. They need to be coached on that. So if we're role playing it and they make a mistake in that role play, and I can say, okay, I want you to try that again. I want you to think of two different ways that you could say that we're going to avoid the F word. And we're going to try to say, we can still be aggressive. We can still make our point. But how can we make it without saying the F word because in the classroom you're, you know, you can't do that. So they need, when I say coaching, instead of when they say the F word, saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're not saying that in here. Or we don't use that language. Or that's disrespectful. Okay. You labeled it for them, but you didn't tell them what to do instead. Mm. So coaching is teaching kids in the moment what to do instead of what you just did. And that's something I teach teachers to do. And they have not been taught to do that. As a general rule in their teacher prep programs, they're they're really not taught to teach coping skills that's something that's pretty new but they're not even taught to teach replacement behaviors they're taught to react to behavior and i'm like we've got to stop catching kids and start coaching kids so if they make a mistake in your classroom have them practice the right way five times in front of you if they use language that's inappropriate have them tell you two other ways they could say what they just said you still could have consequences that's fine if needed But don't forget the coaching piece in there. Help them fix it for next time.
1: And what is coaching about social media? What does that look like? And and specifically for that, for Snapchat, for being aware of if somebody, I've just heard about this, is grooming them. Like that might not happen with your boys, but with girls, like, wow, you're so pretty. You must be a model. Like those kind
0: of things. Well, I think it does happen with boys too, um, which still scares me, even though I have three boys, but You know, when my oldest, who I just allowed to have Snapchat, that's his first thing that he's had, and he's 15, about to be 16. So I know that I was late on that. We sat down and I said, well, let me go over my expectations um, about this with you. And I said, so I gave him some scenarios. I said, okay, so some pictures are going to come across your phone. You didn't take it, but somebody sends you a picture of a girl that's naked. What do you do with it? So I just started giving him some scenarios and, and saying, you know, what are you going to do with that? Because I said, I know what I want you to do with it, but I want you to tell me what you think you should do with it. And let's kind of talk through that. And he said, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, mm-hmm. it is going to happen. Right. And I said, and you, and you can't control what comes in to you. And I don't know enough about Snapchat to know about that, but you can't control what what is fed. If you're on YouTube or Instagram, you really, I mean, things pop up suggestions for you. And you're like, oh, yeah, I, I yeah. don't know why, it, you know, it just suggested that. I have to coach him in advance on what to do when it happens. And I said, kind of the rule of thumb I want you to live by is anything that's on your phone, I want you to ask yourself, would I go show this to my mother right now? I said, and if you wouldn't, don't forward it and don't save it.
1: But what about the peer pressure side? Because let's say they're on the bus and all their friends have it. I'm curious to see if there was resistance or frustration or fights that you, your son had to wait that long when all their friends had Snapchat at eight, nine years old. You know what I mean? No,
0: he, my oldest is a really calm, quiet kind of introvert. And so he did make comments about it over the last couple of years, but he's kind of introverted anyway. So it wasn't like he was dying to get out there with social media. He, I think people who love to, you know, get out there and have as many friends as they can Mm. are probably more into that than he is. So it's going to be interesting with my second and third boys about when they really start to push me for it. So he didn't really push me until eighth grade. And I said, I don't believe it's right for middle schoolers. I don't think it was invented with the middle school audience in mind. So I don't think it's, it's, you're not there yet. You're not emotionally ready for all that social media brings into your life. So I think high school for me is when kids need to start pr- trying it, messing up and being coached on how to do better with it. Cause they're going to mess up. Just like you said, peer pressure on the bus and all mm-hmm. those various things. All my kids are going to make mistakes. My job is to help coach them out of it. And how can I do better next time? It's always about how can I do better next time? Not, Oh, I'm so bad. Oh, I've done this. Mm-hmm. We've got to help them change their mindset, you're a morphing human being. So you're going to make tons of mistakes on the way to adulthood. And then, as you and I know, we're going to make tons of mistakes yeah. as adults, too. It's always learning from the mistake and saying, How will I do better next time?
1: But that's a powerful statement. I want to pause on that for a second of saying, How can we do better next time? That you're always an evolving process instead of, I am bad. Because I imagine me as a 14 year old girl, I'm fat.
0: Right. You know what I mean? Right. Becoming stagnant in that thought about yourself.
1: Right. Or even exactly. Or I am bad. It's it's I I think some people kind of use that commiseration or just let me just go right to the edge and see if somebody can help knock me down or they're going to verify what I already think. But it's um, a powerful shift.
0: It is, you know, say that it's
1: a work in progress.
0: One of the things I talk about, and you sort of mentioned it a little bit earlier, you know, how do you know what the need is that the child is trying to communicate. There's actually some charts out there that, you know, every student, every child when they're, that behavior is an attempt to communicate a need. It's really one of two things. They're trying to get something. They're trying to get out of something. And a lot of times in classrooms, it looks like they're trying to get out of work. They're refusing to do work. They won't do the work. It's not that they don't want to do the work. That is a lie that we tell ourselves. Is that right? Absolutely. What is it? It is avoidance of pain, embarrassment, or an in general lack of confidence. I could see that. All kids want to do well, all kids want to be successful. It's a basic human need. We want to be successful. They, that child that you were talking about, that you worked with, he wants to be a straight A kid. And the fact that he can't do it easily, that it's so hard for him, is why he's acting out. That That is why he's acting out. So mm. I'm such a believer in building confidence. And in, in one of my trainings at for the beginning of the year, I do the first four weeks of school. And I have a theme of the week for the first four weeks. And it's the week one is getting to know our community. Week two is what are my gifts? Week three, how am I smart? Can I take this course? In week four, <laughs> what are my goals? And so I spend the That's first like month for life. By the way, yeah. Amy, this is like
1: what people need for life. <laughs> You know, all my girlfriends, (laughs) all my friends are all
0: figuring out what is my purpose. You're giving me an idea for a side hustle right there, right? That's right. So, you know, the first four weeks of school, I'm really trying to create this environment where kids just want to be in my room. They may hate what I'm teaching. They may not have any friends in the class that they're excited to be with. But by the end of the four weeks, I just want you to go be, you want to be in Miss Dean's class. Like, I want you to feel loved and happy and and celebrated for whatever you're bringing to the table. And then I will ask you to do hard things because you will take risks in an environment that you feel safe and you feel connected. Mm. But when you don't feel that kids shut down, they won't take risks. Learning something new every day is a risk and you are doing it in front of people who are going to judge you. If you can't do it, think of the risk. So now bringing a child who's hungry and whose parent is on drugs and who has been exposed to violence and ask them to take a risk from someone who hasn't really connected with them or who's fussing at them constantly, and you see excessive behaviors. Wow. What are your thoughts on bullying? It's getting worse and worse. I have a really odd thought process about it and a different approach. I'm kind of big on bully-proofing kids rather than focusing on the bully, Mm. but bully-proofing your child. I like that. I'm working
1: on that with my son right now, by the way.
0: You know, and I think I had a sort of a scary overconfidence as a kid in a way when I was made fun of for various things. I well, unfortunately, I would fight. So that was part of it. I was I would just okay. Well, would I'll, you I'll like physically fight? Physically fight? Yeah, physically I like fight. that. Hair yeah, pulling, I was very scrappy, <laughs> um, very scrappy. <laughs> Hair it, pulling,
1: <laughs> eye scratching. I've been there, I remember, by the way. <laughs> I got paddled
0: in first grade for hitting someone with a ruler. Like I remember it very specifically. <laughs> but I was always very very scrappy, and so if somebody would make fun of me, I would come back at them with something funny. You know, that's where the comedy comes yeah. in. And that would vary. And if you've ever seen the show Blackish, there's a whole episode where the main character is coaching his son on comebacks. He's like, You're so weak. You got to come back. You know, you're letting people. And so he was, his son got really mean in the comeback. So I, I imagine some of my comebacks were mean, <laughs> but I feel like I was bullyproofed. I, when kids said certain things about me, some of them were true. And I was like, eh, It is what it is. I got a big nose, got big ears. I'm short, you know, various things that would they would needle me about. And I was like, Yeah, but. But I'm smart. Okay, yeah, but I'm funny. So I got that going for me. And I feel like teaching kids their gifts, that's part of the bully proofing process Mm -hmm. is I want you to recognize all the things that are great about you and I want you to focus on that. So when people tell you that you look a certain way, okay, so what? But I got these 10 things. I got this going for me. So it doesn't really matter. And how do we get kids to do that? You know, that's what my next book, um, There's No Dream Too Tall, The whole focus of it. Is that what the name is? Yeah. There's no dream too tall. Uh, The whole focus is gifts. It's it's teaching kids to recognize their gifts. And I even have one um, based on my nephew where the picture in the story has him. He's that little boy that's off. He's been sent from the carpet. All the thought bubbles are the kids saying, God, he never stops talking. I don't want him to sit by me. Ha ha. You're in trouble again. And then on the other side of the page, it's him as an adult, as an attorney. You know, because he was always told he argues, and he doesn't stop talking, but mm-hmm. his future mm-hmm. is defending people and arguing to the death, you know, about something because that's the skill set he has that annoys the people in his classroom. But that is his gift, that he always has a comeback for something. And that's going to serve him well if he finds the career that is related to his gift. And I want kids to see that, you know, that's why those themes of the week, what are my gifts, how am I smart and what are my goals? because I want us to put it all together for them. So they can, and that's, it comes back, that's what bullyproofing is. It's believing in yourself from the start. And, you know, I had this poster that I made, just literally wrote it out. It said, we're all a thousand things, focus on what's right with you instead of what's wrong with you. And I actually had a teacher, she loved that I said that in a training and she sent me in the mail. She does these little wood, these little pieces of wood. And she, what do you call that when you like carve into it? And she sent me a whole bag of them that says we're all a thousand things. She was just really mm-hmm. moved by it, you know? And so I feel like we're all a thousand things. Why are you focusing on the three that aren't your best parts? That's for grownups too. You yeah. Know? You know, it, it really is mm-hmm. because all of these children we're coaching are going to become grownups who are trying to be successful in the world. So we've got to do this for kids when they're young. The bully proofing, the building, the confidence, the coaching instead of catching and, And then we're going to see adults who are much more productive and can overcome things. You know, that Mm -hmm. resilience. People are always trying to figure out how to teach resilience. You role play, you practice, you coach. I have in a whole little, you know, probably 30 minute piece of my training where I teach teachers how to teach coping skills as a group lesson, not when a child has had crisis and they're in the middle of the crisis. And I'm saying, well, what you should do, nobody's coachable when they're in crisis. When my whole class Mm. is sitting still and quiet. I'm going to say, hey guys, you know what? There are going to be days that you're going to come into class angry. There'll be days you're going to be frustrated. Sometimes you're really sad. You might be sad for six months about something. That's okay. We're all going to feel that way. I'm going to feel that way. What I want to do is teach you how to deal with that in a school or work environment. And here's five things you can do. So I teach them very directly, whole class, we practice it, I put it on a poster on the wall, and then I invite children to make one of those choices when they need to deal with something hard in my classroom instead of blowing up and disrupting teaching and learning. I feel like
1: we as parents spend a lot of money and resources in finding the right activity after school. Like, okay, let's try, you know, my son has this little ukulele after school or gymnastics or Yeah, sports. my kids are in
0: lots of sports.
1: I feel like a program like yours would be far, the dollar would stretch far
0: more. Interesting. Like a coping camp.
1: Yes. (laughs) Right? I'm serious. I'm getting chills. I'm getting chills because I feel like. Look at you
0: sitting on my next hustle. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, I feel like I would rather spend my money on my kids' confidence then on, you know, like, of course, there's value to chess and basketball sure. and all, all of those things, you know, build like, confidence. absolutely. And I feel like organized sports, you know, my, my kids are not very athletic, so I, I don't know sure. that you're going to ever find us on the baseball field. But I think that that confidence camp or coaching, uh,
0: you know, it's really powerful, I say that the lack of confidence is the root of all evil and self confidence is is the start of all success. Because no one is going to love you more than you and no one's going to believe in you more than you. You have to be your number one advocate. It's what I have said to my students my whole career, especially because so many of my kids came from homes where they didn't feel loved, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: and I knew what that felt like because of a parent leaving when I was young. There was a huge hole in my heart and my sisters too that we felt like we weren't right, we weren't good, we weren't enough, you know, that our parents didn't stay together or that we didn't see our mom very often or whatever it was. So I know that constant self doubt and I've talked myself out of it you know so that's why I always feel like kids you can do that you can change your thoughts and you can change your mind by focusing on what you know I've, I i always have been good at talking like when you asked me to do this I'm like yes that is my skill set <laughs> she wants to start, start on a podcast talk, oh Amy there's not one more thing can make it on this plate <laughs> but you know I've got a third grader a sixth grader a ninth grader as they start to get where they need to be, I will start to really pursue some of those yeah. additional dreams, you know, that I have that require time. But I, I I just feel like we've got to help kids build that confidence from within. Mm-hmm. And that's what's wrong with social media is they're trying to build confidence outside of themselves, dependent on what other people are thinking of mm-hmm. them. You need to be your advocate. You need to love the great things about you. And sure, there are things we don't do well. Okay, that's everybody. You know, don't focus on those. Focus on what's right with you.
1: Mm. So how can people contribute to your mission?
0: Well, I I hope that people will read my books to their children. You know, your book
1: is called Your Happy Heart. How helping, helping others helps you too.
0: Yes. And so that's a big personal belief of mine that I have fulfilled with my career. I feel like all healing, helping children heal their hearts healed mine. And so being able to give and pour into kids, some of the things I wish I would have had has really healed me. What personally. is your tagline? Love harder. What it's is it? Teach hard, love harder, mm. you know, because the focus right now is data and test scores and curriculum and, you know, covering standards, all good stuff, all important. That's what we're here to do. Our, our main end goal is education, but kids are not going to take risks and kids are not going to meet, re- meet their optimal educational goals in an environment they don't feel loved and safe. So teach hard, love harder. Get that set first. Get those relationships built. You know, and I actually, in my seminars, I don't just say build relationships. I hate that. Okay, everybody on earth knows that's an important thing. How do you build relationships with a kid who is unkind? How do you build relationships with a kid who doesn't want to have anything to do with you? So I try to give them Mm -hmm. actual strategies, the post-it note campaign, the MVP card Things that I've done as a teacher that I have seen great, you know, return on investment.
1: Tell me about the post-it note campaign. I know it's on your a video on your yes. website. It's really cute. Tell I me actually about.
0: do this. I mean, my kids get post-it notes too, but I ask teachers because obviously, when they're with me, they are away from their kids, and that's important. You have to have had few hours, if not days, away from a student who is pushing your buttons, and you know what I mean. As a mom, sometimes you're like. I need a couple hours away from these people <laughs> so I can be nice again, yes, right? Yes, So I asked the teacher, you're away from the student. I want you to put down this, and I say Richard. Richard is the character, the, the five-year-old in my story, and he's actually a person in my life. He was my most challenging student that I ever had. And I say, I want you to think of who your Richard is right now, and I want you to put, a one, put their name, and I want you to put a one, two, three next to it. And I know that they think I'm going to say, write down the behaviors, and I don't. I say, and I want you to write down three positives about that student, three gifts. And and I always get this big sound from the crowd, like, Oh, you know, people (laughs) are really overwhelmed by three. Mm -hmm. And I say, and it can't be less than three, you must write down three, even if you're being creative. Okay, because just like I said, for the student who sold drugs, taking liberties, right, right. right. And I said, Mm -hmm. because if you can't think of three positive things to say about another human being, that human knows it. And this is a child that's in your class for 180 days. So we have to change our mindset about this child. So I ask them to write three minimum. Then I say, I want you to take each of those things that you wrote down. And they say amazing things about the kids. That's what it it warms my heart because they say funny and great leadership skills and great vocabulary and strong social skills and persistent. And I say, these sound like amazing employees, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about the worst kids in this school right now. And these sound like awesome people. So then I ask them to take each of those qualities and turn it into a personal post-it note. Each one will be different. So I'd say, dear Amy, you are great at talking. You get everybody's attention, Miss Dean. Or dear Richard, um, you're a great leader. Others look up to you, Miss Dean. And I encourage them to never put a suggestion on it. Don't say, but I wish you would or mm-hmm. anything like that. Just write out those those three, four notes. And what I've done right there in that meeting is I've already started to change their mind about the child. And that's so critical because the one who needles you every single day, all day and wears you out, you start to treat them differently. You start to see them differently. And I want to change their mind about the kids. And then I do some, I call it a slow drip campaign. The next day I say, I want you to drop down your first note for no reason out of nowhere. And then three days later, put down the second one next week on a Tuesday, put one down and slowly start to see the return on investment as you start to change their mind about what you think about them.
1: I love that. It it's made me one of my think of. Things. It made me think of a really, really large life lesson that I've been thinking about anyway as I'm coming out with a weekly blog where I have a lesson learned. And one of them that I think about all the time with my husband is I read way before I even knew my husband probably 15 years ago. and it was in psychology today and they said the happiest couples are ones that have positive illusions about the other. And instead of my husband is you know he's so hard headed he's right. so bullish he's so that has a negative connotation but you're or, training
0: your brain to think right, that way my
1: husband is so determined you know like I I really respect his determination
0: has such a different like it changes your whole marriage it's it changes one of the whole my, relationship it's one of my gifts for which I am most proud I can look at any student behavior except for a couple there are a few that are you know sexually aggressive or something along yeah. those lines, I can look at almost any student behavior and tell you the silver lining around it. Mm-hmm. I can come up with it like that. People will tell me behavior and I will tell you the flip side to that. And that is what I think kids have always been drawn to. I will find what's right with you, honey. That's your gift. There's no yeah. way that you're going to get it past me. I'm going to figure out what's awesome about you. And I want teachers to have that same approach to hard kids. And it's amazing how they sort of, that wall will melt. And they, uh, for me, a lot of my students who came in So rough and tough, so ready to argue, so ready to curse and threaten and all of that. When they came to the other side, when I got them on my team, then it was like, now they're going to beat people up for me. I'm like, no, (laughs) okay, hold up. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for loving me and wanting to protect me, but you don't need to kill anyone for me. You know, I mean, so it was like, I I mean, it was, you know, 180 for kids that were coming at me and then wanted to be for me. And that's what I'm always teaching teachers. You need to get Richard on your team. That's your main goal. And you need to get the parent on your team too. You need to have the first two phone calls that you make to that parent. As soon as you can see that student's gonna be a challenge for you. You call and you say, hey, this is Amy Dean. I wanna welcome you to my class. I, wanna... I can see Richard has so much energy. He's just got a ton of energy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I hope that I can call you whenever I need to. And I'm excited to have him in class. And you say nothing else. And the next time you call, you say, oh my gosh, the kids really watch everything that he does. He has got some really natural leadership qualities. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? And you hang the phone up and then you start asking for support with the struggles. But it's a big mistake teachers make is they let that first phone call be the complaint it's hard though because they're so wound up and trying so hard to get some order or to get through to their kids so so it's just being proactive it's making sure your first phone calls are positive even if you have to literally just just be like okay thanks bye bye (laughs) I have another call coming in six (laughs) yeah and I'm gonna call you back in six
1: minutes for that second positive phone call (laughs) so I can get this thing done you know I have a feeling I know because you've been talking through it. But what is next for you? What how if if people are going to be
0: able to read you? What kind of services can you offer? So, uh, what is next for me is trying to be a little more virtual and do some virtual coaching. I haven't got into that yet. Right now, I travel and do seminars. I I stand in front of a lot of teachers. I get on stages and conferences. But my favorite thing to do is visit classrooms. So I offer a, a on-site consultation coaching package that administrators hire me to do or they identify some classrooms where there's some hard kids or teachers who really want some help. And I go and observe and I have this feedback form, a sort of prescription thing that I do. And I get to sit with the teacher and meet with the teacher and help coach them on what I would do, how I would handle that, how I think they can improve their situation. Mm. I want to be able to offer that because right now that's administrators hire me to do that. School districts hire me to do that. Teachers Can't really hire me to do that. You know, that all has to come through Mm -hmm. the office. So I would love to expand what I'm doing to offer that. So where you could sign up on my website for a time slot and, you know, Venmo or PayPal. And I would give you that time slot for for we would zoom in or Skype or whatever we want to use. Into your classroom, and you can say, "What about this? What about you?" Can ask me questions, and I can. Ooh, give that's you, great. I can do that virtual coaching. I think it's a huge. That's where a lot of you know seminars, a lot of things going online, and so I need to build that part of my business, mm-hmm. and that would allow me to travel less. You know, because the the bomb guilt is real. Yeah, about the traveling, and you know, I've had to really work with my kids on. You know, I've literally been directly asked. So, are those kids more important than me? Because they know what my my calling is—I've been very clear my whole life, yeah. their whole lives—about the, I. This is what I am meant to do. I am meant to help heal kids and save kids, and you know that's the question that they've had when mommy's gone off for three days. Yeah, you know to do it. So um, I'm, I feel like that if I pursue that, that's going to help me find a little more balance. With the travel.
1: So how can people find you? What are your handles or websites? Tell sure. me.
0: Everything's Behavior Queen. So behaviorqueen.com, am at Behavior Queen, Twitter, Amy Dean Behavior Queen, uh, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> and, you know, that's I'm not a big social media person. That's been really hard for me. And my publisher is like, You have to be, you know, on social mm-hmm. media. You're an author. How are you gonna get yourself out there? Um I love Twitter. I love that quick, you know, kind of little, little quip, little thing that's uh, out there. I'm, I'm getting better at Instagram and I, I like the idea of it, but I have never, I haven't been a real big, um, I guess, cheerleader of social media because I see it from what it's doing with kids. Mm. So I've got to sort of fight that because from a PR perspective and marketing perspective, I need to be blowing that up, you know? So, but I would love for people to follow your Happy Heart, my first book. My second one is about to come out. There's No Dream Too Tall. When hey, does I'm, that come out? So I, I think in the next couple of weeks. Like oh, I just wow. I just sent in the dedication yesterday. I've The font is picked. The artwork's been Congrats. done for a long time. The artwork is so beautiful. Sean James, I'm so ecstatic that I was able to be paired up with her and her vision for my words. I, I mean, I've just cried. She sends pictures and I cry over the pictures, you know, because it's like I want every child to see themselves in this book and say, I can do that too. You know, in my last, the last page is this beautiful spread of a little girl looking out the window and it says, if you don't know your dream yet, that's quite all right too. Just believe in yourself and your dream will find you. Mm -hmm. Because I want kids to know that if you haven't figured it out, it's fine too. If you went one direction and that's not what you're like, oh, I don't want to be an engineer. That's okay too. You know, you keep... Playing with your passions. Keep finding the things that you feel called to do. You know, it's kind of like what Oprah says. Do what you love and the money will come. You know, do what you're good at. Figure out what you're good at. And then try to pursue that as, you know, your life's career. Being snarky on Instagram
1: never worked for me <laughs> in terms of making money. But I don't know. I tried. So you're trying. I tried. I yeah. tried for a lot of times. Well, thank you so much, Amy Dean. Thank you. This you has are been a culture awesome. changer. I love what you're doing. You are changing literally the future of our nation and of the world through thank this so much. teaching. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Amy Dean, the behavior queen. Wasn't it so clear that she is making such a huge impact for teachers and students alike? They are truly the future of this world. And I love that Amy is getting it so right. I've linked all of our info in the show notes and asked for the newly minted Culture Changers podcast. These episodes are available not only on your favorite listening app, but also on Decatur FM and on Salesforce Radio. Text me your feedback at 470-242-6311. And make sure you enter the drawing for a free giveaway of my interactive podcast coaching course valued at $407. Please leave a five-star rating and review, screenshot it, share it on your socials, tag me, and most of all, share this episode with a friend or five. Culture changing is really a movement, but only works when your ideas are shared. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.